Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Nick, the Chief Strategy Officer at BizDesign, and we discuss how BizDesign is enabling large organizations to design and plan for the future. Nick helps me understand the digital transformation paradox and how to implement the six S's of strategy in your own organization. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So we're just going to hang out and talk. Is that cool? Absolutely. Awesome. I read your notes. So I saw the my my producer forwarded them over to me. And I was like, this person is thorough. You had some really great notes. <laughs> and I was I was super excited about them. And I was just curious. Like I started to think about communication and how important communication is. And then the role that you're at and your company and how it's growing. And you chose this title, uh, Chief Strategy Officer when you have a lot of software background and growing technology teams. And so I was curious, the first question that I, that I had was, you know, why did you choose that title? So when I was considering you know, this new role from my previous one, um, there was a lot of focus around you know, the strategic initiatives for biz design, the, the company I work for, and um, how we need to evolve ourselves and and some of the key uh, things we need to do to support that. And it it wasn't directly a sales job. It wasn't directly a a marketing job or a product job, but it was, you know, kind of connecting various different dots across the organization and and joining those things together in, in a unified way forward, you know, in support of, our evolving value proposition uh, for, for those customers that we want to target and, and uh, how we want to create value for them from our products and services. And so that there wasn't a, you know, nice existing, you know, pigeonhole uh, that, that that role fits into. Um, but it was really dealing with the strategy of, of where we're going as a company, um, but also the, the strategic initiatives that we need to execute on to support that. So, that's where we came up with that title that seemed like a good fit with that. And did you always want to do this? Like when you were a little kid playing at the playground, were you, <laughs> were you dreaming of being a chief strategy officer for a tech company? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wanted to be a footballer at that time. <laughs> <laughs> what um, happened? <laughs> yeah, where did it all go wrong? Um, I mean, it's a really interesting role and I love doing it. And uh, you get to have a lot of really interesting conversations with customers, with with, partners internally and externally. And for for what we're doing at BizDesign, we get to have a lot of interesting strategic conversations with large organizations who have very big problems to solve. Uh, which for a, a company of you know ninety people based out of the Netherlands is is actually a really interesting place to be. And what was your first job? Like your first big job? So my first job after graduating from university was actually as a financial journalist, and um, I, I studied mathematics. And so you know that, that's not the most obvious um, career start for for a mathematician. But it was in a, a specialized area of financial derivatives and, and risk management. 
and you know all that complex financial instruments that kind of blew up the world economy in in 2008 with with that credit crunch uh, and there was a need for people who could write about that stuff but also understand the subject matter so so maybe that's where my thorough notes come from is that that journalistic background and you know writing everything down <laughs> <laughs> i love it yeah but it prepared you well because communication is such a critical thing and your ability to take your thoughts and put them down in a simplistic way and let let other people be able to make decisions on those that is that's critical to working together and leading an organization yeah and i think you know in in tech people very easily get focused on you know the bits and the bytes and the technology um, but at the end of the day it's always all about what people do with that technology you know how does it improve their lives how do enterprises uh, leverage new technologies to do new things and and do something for their customers and it's all about communication ultimately and if you can't communicate the 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 reasons why you want to do something and the value of doing that thing and how you're going to go about doing it you can't bring people with you on that journey i saw a a post on linkedin the other day and it was like a graphic a meme type thing and it says uh, the college says the minimum requirement seven pages uh, for a paper and he goes the real world says explain it to me in seven seconds or less <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely it's that you know that first minute of a meeting is, is where you get people's attention or you don't and um, that's where communication is absolutely critical so what's the core business model for biz design so biz design is a software company, software as a service, and we are in the enterprise architecture management space. And maybe I can explain a bit about what that is uh, by using an analogy. Um, But in short, it's around uh, helping large, complex organizations define or design their future business and then plan how they're going to get there and, and how they execute on that in the best way. And so, you know, to to explain what is enterprise architecture, Jeffrey Moore, who who wrote Crossing the Chasm, uh, just published a great blog on digital transformation. And and the main subject of that blog was the following paradox, where he says, you know, you cannot digitally transform your enterprise without software, but software cannot digitally transform your enterprise. So, you know, you need technology, but but it's not just about the technology. And digital transformation is not just about digitizing and automating your existing processes and how you do things. Um, that's just automation, not transformation. Um, so digital transformation is about changing what you do and how you do it. And, and you know, in the current climate, it's also about doing that really fast. And, and that requires designing some kind of desired future state for what you want your your business or your enterprise to be. And and so Jeffrey Moore says in this blog, if you don't have a clear design for your future state, you have no North Star by which to navigate your digital transformation and, and you can't possibly succeed. So that's what enterprise architecture is all about. It's about designing the future enterprise in terms of, of what the enterprise does. So the business model and its capabilities and and how it does it 
in terms of its operating model consisting of people, process, data, uh, and technology, and then building roadmaps for you know how you get there to that that future enterprise design from where you are today, which is probably you know quite radically different from that future state. So so enterprise architecture is all about modeling that stuff. So creating digital models of the enterprise across those different dimensions of, of the enterprise. So business, business capabilities, business processes, uh, but also data, technology, people, and you know, the change efforts that, that get applied to change all of those things. Uh, and importantly, making the connections between those things. So it's very much a connected kind of model, uh, you know, graph style data model, combining all of these different dimensions so that you can analyze it, understand the dependencies and impacts of change and, and how your strategy kind of guides that change. So if you're going to model a future state, the first thing you have to do is create a model of your existing state. So you don't have to create a model of your current state in order to create your future state model. But obviously, if you want to get from where you are today to where you want to be as defined by that future state model, you've got to understand where you are and, and what you need to change in order to get there. Yeah, that's like saying you don't need a license to drive. <laughs> <laughs> but if, but it it, helps. <laughs> if you drive without a license, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, it, it sounds really interesting. I, I don't have these problems at scale right now. My company is less than 15 people, but I am connecting a lot with the fact that I get to talk to people that run large organizations constantly. And it's interesting how the same things are on their mind that are on my mind. What's my next product? What do my customers want? How do I serve them best? Who's going to come out and sneak up on me? Like, for example, I have a background in financial services and insurance technology. And there was, when smartphones were coming out, there were a couple applications that would give you quotes right from the application. You could just download, install the app. But they weren't really insurance companies, I forget the names of the, some of the brands, but they were completely dominating because people just would rather click an app, scan their license plate, type in their you know data, and then get a quote in real time and click purchase rather than calling an insurance agent, getting a paper quote, coming in, signing, giving them a check. And so these, these companies paid attention to what the customers wanted and that gave them a, a leg up in the market. Then they grew and then the bigger companies either scrambled to try to buy them or the founders wouldn't sell and they ended up becoming dominant forces in the industry. But it's it's fascinating because you're always having to look at at what's happening in, in the marketplace and then figure out how to position your business. And I can only imagine at a thousand plus employees how much more difficult that would be if you say, we know we want to go over here, but now we've got to get 1,000 people <laughs> to go over here. Well, and then imagine that when you've got 250,000 people across operations in 50 or 60 countries and you've got, you know, four main different business units, you know, vertical lines of business, each with their own management structures. And, you know, you've grown by acquisition over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And you've got all of that, you know, baggage that comes along with those acquisitions where, you know, it, it's just nuts. And and I've literally had conversations with, 
senior executives in in financial institutions where they're saying, well, you know, when our commercial banking team in Mexico wants to build a a mobile banking application, you know, it might be the twentieth or the thirtieth time we've done that, just because people don't know, you know, all the other people in our organization who are doing that thing. And so, you know, we keep reinventing the wheel, we keep doing it in different ways, using different technologies. And, you know, that that accumulation of, of technical debt becomes, you know, an ever bigger anchor holding back the, the ability of the organization to, to change and change at the speed it needs to. That's really interesting. I didn't even, I've never thought about that. If you have such a large organization, 250,000 people, how much technology is recreated within the organization? you know, in its own way, and then you have to maintain it. And then it even reduces the ability for cross-pollination because if we do this type of thing this way and another part of the organization does it on their own custom system a different way, the developers aren't even transferable over easily versus if if, if there was a concept within the organization and they all kind of did it the same way. Absolutely. And, you know, that that particular company in question when you ask about you know how much technology is being created and and used certainly at at the time we had those conversations they had more developers than microsoft so you know the mind just boggles about how much stuff is being created and so you know the, the the challenge for ctos these days is is how do you get your arms around all of that complexity all of those moving parts and and try and drive you know, alignment and, and uh, agility across uh, at scale. So you must have two parts of your business. You must have the technology, but you also, I couldn't see your ability to sell this without having a consulting side that understands this. Do you guys do consulting too? We do. So uh, we have a consulting arm that operates both pre and post sales and provides that, if you like, expert practitioner advice and guidance to help our customers get the most value from the technology. Um, So it it is one of those areas where it definitely helps to have that best practice advisory in in terms of how you deploy and get value for it. But in terms of where we're headed as a business, we're certainly looking to productize as as much of that expertise and IP as possible to to make it a, a simpler more intuitive kind of guided process. That's the name of the game, right? That's that's the future of AI. We take the intelligence and then we can all party once we have all the <laughs> AI AI running everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's quite that simple, but you know, it's certainly having a more kind of product-led approach to to our product design to, you know, at each step in that user journey, understand, well, what does the user need to be achieving in their role and, and kind of building that into the design of the product is, is where we're going. Yeah. And I meant party in a responsible way, like family cookouts, <laughs> campfires, <laughs> not like nights at the club, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, this is great. You know, when I was reading about the digital transformation paradox, I was pretty interested because, you know, Jeffrey Moore obviously a really popular author, right? And he explores ideas from like a general perspective. And when I heard this concept that software is not digital transformation, I was thinking, well, clearly, right? Obviously. But then I also instantly started thinking about like quantum physics, like the things down really, really low 
don't operate the same way as the things up at the top, right? And <laughs> we don't know why, but I'm really in software. And so I could imagine how some executives, you know, how it's how it would be completely normal for them to just be in a world where they start seeing software changing everything and think, okay, let's throw software at it. That's like the most, that's like step one of your learning experience, right? Let's just throw a bunch of software at it. And then you slowly peel back the layers and realize it's, that's not working. And then you start reading really great things by Jeffrey Moore and getting a deeper understanding of it. Where do you think the market's at in, in terms of Jeffrey Moore's paradox? Do you think half the market believes that if you just throw software at it, that's digital transformation, 10% of the market? Where do you think the market's at? So I'm not sure it's as simple as, you know, one or the other and, and or, or, you know, it's just, I don't think it's as simple as people thinking, okay, if we just have a nice new website or a nice new mobile app, that, that solves our digital transformation challenge. I think there, there's a genuine awareness that digital, you know, opens up new possibilities for a lot of companies to do something different or, 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 you know, leverage their existing core business and core capabilities to provide new digital products and services. But in many cases, I think a lot of companies are still struggling with, well, how do we go about that? You know, how do we get started on that journey? Um, how do we change our existing management structures and approaches, you know, and, and break down those silos to, to kind of unleash that creativity and innovation in a digital world. And, you know, that is tough. And I think there's still only a minority of companies are doing that really, really well. But if you think about, you know, the fundamental nature of, of the change of some of these things, and maybe I can give you an example, um, you can understand, you can see why it's challenging. So, Let's take a, a medical device manufacturer, for example, uh, and they've probably spent most of the last century making you know, mechanical products for some specific medical purpose, maybe you know, measuring heartbeats or something like that. And with the advent of electronics, those devices maybe get a bit smarter, a bit smaller, faster, and maybe cheaper. Um, but ultimately, it's still a, a physical mechanical product to, to measure heartbeats. And then with the emergence of the internet and ubiquitous connectivity and cloud computing and internet of things, you know, these, these devices are now a source of real-time data with the opportunity to provide all kinds of new data-driven services uh, on, on, you, you know, that leverage that data. So maybe providing predictive health analytics and, and predictive health apps for users where they can take a more proactive approach to managing their health and you know that's all driven by spotting patterns in the data using machine learning and AI, and matching those patterns with you know people who had similar patterns in the data and and who had specific health outcomes. So you can kind of start you know matching these outcomes with what you're seeing in the data. So so that's a fundamental change of business model and operating model moving from you know physical devices where you ship them off to the customer and that's basically it. Maybe save for a bit of product maintenance to real-time digital services, you know, much more personalized. Um, and that's a strategic choice. You know, do you want to pursue that new market? And obviously the, the the type of capabilities you need as an organization to do that are very, very different from 
building your physical devices and, and shipping them off to customers. Yeah, you'll have to boot up entire new teams and have a business model to justify the investment in them. Exactly. And you've got to design what is that business model? How are we going to operate that business model? How does that you know, translate into people, process, technology, and, and data? And, and you know, what do we need to change in order to get there? And how are we going to roadmap that? And that's where you know, enterprise architecture comes in to help you model that design it and, and understand, okay, how do we get there from, from where we are today? Now, when customers come to you, have they already gone, typically, have they already gone through the process of market research and an idea of the direction that they want to head and then they need to help model that? Or are they coming to you saying, we don't really know what to do. We have like 17 potential paths, but we don't know how to test them and figure out which path to go down. I would say mostly the the customers for our software already have some important and, and high priority and urgent change imperative driving them to, to need to find a better way to change. It's not always the case. I mean, that there are uh, companies, and particularly in the Netherlands where we grew up, enterprise architecture is a well-established discipline. Lots of companies do it as a best practice um, for you know, modeling what they do now and, and where they're going in the future. But where it really comes into its own in terms of value creation is where there is an urgent imperative to change. And that's where, you know, typically they'll contact us. Now, what we don't do is get into the nitty gritty of guiding our customers between their specific strategic choices. Okay, So that's their business to decide, you know, where they're going to play and, and how they're going to win but we help them with the tooling to model that stuff out so they've got a clear set of strategic choices to make and they can understand them, understand the implications of each of those strategic choices and find the best way forward for them, you know, based on fact-based decisions, you know, around a single source of truth that, that gets everything onto a kind of apples to apples footing where, you know, if you're talking about something in one division in North America, and, and there's another division in Europe that wants to do something slightly different. You know, how do you really compare those from a, you know, speed, cost, risk perspective in a way that you can start really comparing it on, on the same footing? Do you get a lot of work from like private equity firms or companies trying to do mergers and acquisitions? Certainly mergers and acquisitions is a big use case for, for what we do, uh, especially where there's already been a merger or there's a planned acquisition or merger and you know you've got two companies coming together where there's going to be a big overlap between things both of them do so all the kind of core supporting activities of IT HR finance you know that's typically uh, every company does that in some way shape or form so the driver in that case, it is usually uh, to how quickly you can put those things together onto a common platform. And it's usually, you know, do we take company A or company B's approach and then migrate the other one onto a common platform to run that stuff uh, at, at, you know, minimal cost? And then you've got, you know, those differentiating business capabilities, which is usually the primary strategic uh, driver for the for the merger or the acquisition, 
is where you create the value from these things in terms of differentiation. And, and in those cases, um, it's more a case of, okay, how do we arrange the parts? You know, which operating model do we, do we take from which company and, and plan for speed and, and time to market in those differentiating capabilities where, you know, the, the new product innovations happening, where we're really able to create the, those new products and services that differentiate from the competition and other drivers of, of how that organization wins in the market. So there's usually you know, different drivers for change depending on the type of business capability. Now I'm starting to understand your title of chief strategy officer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are companies out there who, who've really made their, their mergers and acquisition process a, a, a strategic competitive advantage. So, you know, there are companies out there who make lots of acquisitions and they really have this process, uh, you know, well, well documented and and, and how they do it in terms of when they're acquiring a company, they look at the the business capabilities of of this acquisition target and they compare with their existing business capabilities and they can very quickly identify, you know, here are the three key differentiating capabilities of this company we're acquiring you know, we'll let those carry on going uh, in in the way they currently do things. Everything else we're replatforming onto our core enterprise platforms. And we do that, you know, as fast as possible. So they're realizing the financial, you know, economies of scale of that acquisition with all the, the supporting capabilities, and then really nurturing those differentiating capabilities to drive that strategic advantage. Yeah, I mean, an entire industry... I mean, that's what a SPAC is, right? Special purpose mm-hmm. acquisition company, right? Yeah, but you think about, you know, some of the big some of the big tech companies who are out there, you know, they're always, uh, they have this kind of ongoing rolling process of, of, of buying up smaller companies that give them some, you know, specific capability. But all of the, you know, financial HR, IT stuff, they're just replatforming it immediately. Well, that's the beauty of the market, right? The entrepreneur can create, build up the revenue, and then sell off to to a company that's looking to grow. And then uh, the market consolidates as you get to the top. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's the name of the game over here. We're, we're lo- like, where can we sell to? Where could we be useful? Uh, because, you know, I've talked to a lot of founders and I have found that the difference in growth, and this is just you know my personal opinion and my conversations with some founders, but they would have made the same money if they would have sold at around five million that they did at fifty million because of the different investors they had to bring in and the delusion that happened. And so I've talked to a couple people, and they're like, "Yeah, it would have been a lot, a lot easier to sell at five million than 50. Uh, because it just would have been, you know, three years faster and a whole lot less work. And that's when the different parts of the market and the different financing levels started to emerge to me and for me to really understand them because, you know, I want to be useful to the marketplace. And so you have to know the rules of the game that you're playing and the different levels that exist in order to be, to be useful, right? Absolutely. And of course, nobody's got that crystal ball of, of how things are going to play out in the future. Um, and at, at risk of showing my age, I remember when Amazon was still, you know, an online bookstore and they went public 
And at the time, you know, there was a lot of discussion around, you know, wow, that's a crazy valuation for a bookstore. And then, you know, you look at Amazon today being in cloud tech and media and, and everything else. And, um, well, Jeff Bezos uh, clearly made some good decisions along the way and, and is probably very glad he didn't sell out at $5 million. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he's looking better, too. Like, when you look at the picture from him doing his interviews in 1999, he looks horrible. And then you see the pictures of him now, and he's all, like, tan and jacked and everything. I'm like, all right, so being the richest man in the world does does make you more attractive. Or he's, like, the second richest man. I think Musk just just bumped up past him. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure uh, that wealth can can buy a whole lot of good lifestyle choices. Right. You could see he went he went bald. Right. He decided to shave, but Musk decided to like get his hair. We're this is completely off topic. We're not turning into People Magazine for <laughs> technology. <laughs> this is what happens when I do early podcast. You know, get get uh, too much energy in the morning and I get off topic. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe just to recap on on one story from the past as well, having just spoken about Amazon, you know, I I, I have kids, they're teenagers. And, um, you know, you asked me earlier about what I like about tech and, and I love how it improves our lives. And um, again, at risk of showing my age, you know, I try and tell my kids about what life was like when I was young. And if you wanted to know something, you know, you went to a library and, and you look for a book in the library on the subject that you wanted to know about. And, and if you were lucky, the book was there in the library. And, and, and if not, you know, someone else already had the book. And then, you know, you'd write in a card and say, you know, I'd like to have this book, please. And, and then you'd wait for the book to come back to the library. And you know, you'd go down there every once in a while. Or if, if you were lucky, they might phone you to say the book's back. And that could take a few weeks. And, you know, now, if you want to know something, search on your phone and, and or ask Siri or whoever a question and, and in a few seconds you've, you've got the answer and you've got pretty much you know any knowledge that you want and I, I try and explain how amazing this is to my kids and you know they give you that look that, that only teenagers specialize in you know the one that says you know what the hell are you talking about you loser but they, they just cannot understand what what pre-digital life was like but it's got to feel good to some extent like I'm a dad my kids are under the age of five but all of these experiences I'm having, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I've waited 30 years to have these experiences, right? To be on the other side of things, to not get the snack when you want it, right? And to, un to understand why. And so it must be a little bit rewarding to see that look in their face. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, virtual reality, I think for me is, is one of those things and, um, you know, buying a surprise VR headset at Christmas. I was, I was hero for the day. Yes. When do you think, when do you think that will get mass adoption or do you think the technology has to be good enough to be like a contact for it to, to get mass adoption? That's a good question. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't know uh, is, is the answer at this point. You know, the technology is pretty good and it fits into you know, a relatively small space right now. I guess, you know, cost and, and ease of use and, and portability is still one of the key challenges there. But it, it feels like we're not far away from, from that breakthrough where it starts becoming mainstream. Yeah, I think 
there's going to be a spectrum, right? A number of technologies that come out over time before it ultimately one wins. I think the one that wins is going to be the Neuralink type technology where it's just embedded within us and we're like one with the technology. But along the way, you know, I see the VR headsets super useful in the training. Like if you're training firefighters or like certain types of industrial activities, it seems to be very popular and very useful as business cases over there. But recreationally, I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the holograms, I think that technology when we don't have to put it on, I I mm. just think there's something weird about putting the headset on. If I can put it on and it not feel like if it were equivalent to me putting on my sunglasses, there's a win. I think that would take off. Or if it were just around me in like an ambient way, that would take off. But the the bigger headsets that like strap to your head, I think it's only going to be like in the very specific like oh, I'm doing some training for work or I'm doing something for work-related. I don't think recreationally people are going to be wearing those for long periods of time. No, I, I, I agree. I mean, it's uh, it's the ergonomics of it and not ideal. Yeah, we don't like to put things over our face. Like, we don't like to cover and wrap things around our heads as people. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, when I was reading your notes, I got this concept that that people are mistaking automation and transformation. Is that happening? Yes, definitely. Now, there are clearly benefits in digital from automation and, you know, robotic automation uh, is delivering step changes in productivity and, 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 and profitability. But there is a difference between, you know, automating an existing process and actually redesigning an operating model uh, and, and really transforming the organization uh, on that basis. So people will will mis- mistake the two. They'll think, all right, we're going to do some automation and that is, tra- or they'll use the terms interchangeably. Yeah, it, it, in some cases. I mean, not everyone. And, and clearly um, there are many organizations out there, you know, reinventing themselves for digital, coming up with new business models. But I think a lot of, of what gets lumped in under the, the the headline of digital transformation is is really you know digital automation rather than transformation and of all of your experience helping these companies do these models and be strategic and you know change their organizations transform them what are some of like what's like the one one or two patterns that you see over and over between your customers so um you know, very common themes that, that we see are communication and actually getting everybody onto the same page. So it's one thing to have a strategy that's, you know, created in the boardroom, you know, with, with some consultants who come in and design that, that strategy. It's quite another thing to have that driving transformation at scale and having everyone in the organization you know aligned and, and pulling in the same direction to, to make that happen and so communication is key as, as we said at the start of this podcast but having the means of communicating that at scale um, giving you know each of, of these different roles that need to be involved in transformation the right information to play their part as a joined up coherent whole is is really important and you know that's where 
our kind of tooling comes in, but it, it's a common theme that we see that you've got, uh, you know, people in, in the project management office who need to be allocating budgets, um, you know, planning key milestones of, you know, getting from one stage to the next. And, and, and they're thinking about timescales and money. You've got people operating those individual business units who are responsible for, you know, making a profit, selling more widgets. Uh, and you've got, you know, process owners who need to, you know, get the work done for the daily operations. And then you've got developers and technologists who, who need to be, you know, creating all this new tech that, that, that's going to transform the organization. And then you've got the risk managers who, you know, want to keep everything safe and, and stop the bad guys hacking in and, you know, make sure everyone's complying with all the legal and, 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 and regulatory stuff. And, you know, all of these people need different answers and, and, and different insights to play their role, but they all need to be kind of ultimately singing from the same hymn sheet and understanding where this business is going and, and how they're going to do that. And, and that's where having the, these digital models and, and being able to uh, get you know, insights from these models in the right form for the right stakeholder is really important. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things we see it's just how do you get everyone aligned in an, in a kind of integrated way to 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 all move in the same direction? Is that where the six strategy? What is it called? The six S strategy? Is that where that the, comes the, the, in? The six S's, yeah. So that's um, I would say coming at it from a very technology focus. So if if you think about you know the challenge for a CTO as, as part of a digital transformation, you've got all of this business change going on, um, you know, there's top-down strategy coming from the boardroom, but then there's all this, you know, bottom-up innovation happening in, in the teams on the ground. And yes, uh, Saul Van Buren, uh, who, who's head of tech at, at Wells Fargo, articulated this kind of six S's of, of technology strategy. And this really talks about, you know, skills, security, stability, scalability, speed uh, and satisfaction and you can think of the first three of those as the kind of defense strategy of, of the CTO so you know taking the first one skills uh, ensuring that the organization has the skills for today while developing the skills they're going to need for tomorrow which as we've seen with transformation you know could be very very different from the skills of today second security so ensuring the right cybersecurity controls are in place, um, but also establishing the, the right security principles to ensure that you know, all that new stuff that's being created is secure by design. So you're naturally uh, guiding people in the right direction. And stability is the third of those things. So uh, ensuring the, the resilience and, and the reliability of the services. So, you know, and that there's a big automation uh, aspect of that because if you're, you're automating a process you're taking out that um, manual error prone uh, activity from from that process and obviously things like you know devops uh, continuous integration continuous deployment drive that reliability of services and it's you know understanding basically the sources of risk up front and, and planning for that and fixing it up front so that's the kind of defensive aspect and then the, the offensive strategy is more around, you know, scalability, 
So ensuring that you've got these on-demand, elastically scalable services where you can you know, scale up, scale down that capacity in line with demand or throughput um, speed. So again, this whole digital transformation uh, thing in the pandemic, that, that created a, an amazing forcing function where all of a sudden everything's got to be online, everything's got to be remote, and um, we literally had customers saying, you know, they made more progress in, in two weeks in the pandemic than they'd made in the two years previously in terms of getting their services online, making them digital, uh, making sure everyone could operate uh, remotely. And so that, that was a really interesting aspect of, of this notion of, of driving speed and agility a lot of companies have really realized if they can strip out the noise, create that focus on business outcomes, you get everybody aligned, they can actually move much, much faster than they, they previously thought they could. Uh, and then the, the last of the, the successes is around satisfaction. And that's all really about making sure the products and services that you're creating uh, for customers, be it internal customers or external customers, actually create value and, and, and satisfy those customers. Because you can do all of the other five S's really, really well, but if nobody wants to use those products and services, it's kind of all a waste of time. Um, so, you know, that relentless customer focus um, and, and, and really designing everything around customer needs uh, is, is incredibly important, more so than ever, I think. Yeah, and Wells Fargo has some fantastic technology. I mean, they've been a leader in mobile banking since since the beginning. Yeah, and you know, um, we're all used to using you know Twitter, Spotify, you know, modern applications, and um, there's, I think there's definitely a, a big theme in, in the enterprise now that actually enterprise technology should be as usable, as intuitive as consumer software. And this idea of you know consumerizing the user experience uh, is getting really key, and you know I'm sure there's lots of people familiar with using enterprise applications where they're like, oh my god, you know this user interface is 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 so so difficult, and expectations have changed, uh, and you know people are inherently going to move towards whichever solution is is most effortless for them to use. If you were a CTO and like you hear this advice, you know, the six S strategy, right? Obviously they can look up the article and find out some more information, but how as a CTO VP of engineering, maybe just manager who wants to be very useful <laughs> to, the, to the executive team and show that they're trying, how would they actually like walk through an evaluation of the success strategy? So that's a good question. And, um, what I would say is using this concept of business capabilities as a, a way of, of framing, you know, what is it we need to assess and how do we get our arms around this mass of technology and data and, and change and innovation uh, and really get it into a manageable uh, framework where we can assess it in a structured way and, and have some kind of apples to apples, you know, consistent way of, of, of looking at this stuff and, and prioritizing what is it we're going to do. And so 
if, if you think about those six S's, you, you can create assessments that you can apply to, you know, applications, processes, and, and business capabilities, um, where you can assess each of those kind of things according to, you know, what skills do we need? Is it secure? Is it is it stable? Is it scalable? Um, you know, how fast can we change it? You know, what's the user, the customer satisfaction for it? You, you can do, you know, your NPS surveys. And by then, you know, collecting those assessments and, and building it into your business as usual processes, you can, you know, define the metrics by which you're going to measure how effective are we being for, for each of these six S's. And by then putting that into a framework of business capabilities, you can then start prioritizing, okay, you know, where do we have the gaps between where we want to be and, and where we are today in terms of those successes? And importantly, by looking at it from a lens of business capabilities, you can understand, well, which of these capabilities are actually our real strategic important capabilities, you know, where we're driving our differentiation and competitive advantage in the market so maybe we want to place higher priority on the gaps we see in those strategic capabilities versus, um, you know, the supporting capabilities where we're really looking to drive, you know, efficiency and, and standardization. And, you know, there may be different priority you place on, on the different S's depending on which type of capability it is. So you remember before we were talking about those those strategic capabilities that are, are giving you competitive advantage in the market, you probably want to be focusing on, you know, satisfaction and speed and scalability. So the offensive S's, if you like, for those capabilities, um, whereas in, in some of the more supporting capabilities, you know, it may be cost and um, efficiency and, and quality that is a bigger driver uh, in, in those other capabilities. But it's it's really... This, this concept of capabilities is how you can make that connection between strategy, you know, business model and operating model, because that's, that's really the one key concept that links your strategy and your strategic choices with what you do as a business and, and how you do it. And it gives you that frame where you can really start assessing everything and getting your arms around it and getting some you know, simplicity and clarity around where you need to put the focus, where you need to invest. And you can start, you know, identifying mismatches between where you're currently planning to invest your, your change budgets and, and where you really need to be doing it from a strategic perspective. What type of media would I consume if I wanted to brush up on strategy? For example, YouTube channels, blogs, books, podcasts, any, what type of content do you like? Um, well, clearly, and, and, you know, shameless uh, plug here, but, you know, BizDesign has lots of good content on our website uh, on these kinds of topics, you know, podcasts, blogs, webinars, uh, case studies, all that stuff. Um, you know, beyond our content, there's, there's a whole bunch of interesting, you know, I subscribe to McKinsey newsletters. They're pretty big on this kind of thing. Jeffrey Moore on, on LinkedIn regularly posts interesting articles. There's a bunch of CIO resources that, that have regular articles and, and blog posts on this stuff. 
there's there's business schools mit has some some great uh, articles you know harvard business review as well um so I don't think there's one single go-to source for this stuff, but, but there is a ton of interesting information out there. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.